0: Today on Legalese, we need to talk about why the police have no duty to protect you. Hey, greetings everybody and welcome back once again to Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me bid a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, real quick, you can find the show uh, on a number of uh, different platforms. We have a video version on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey, uh, there is an audio only version on Anchor and Spotify. If you head over to Substack, you can find the show uh, as well as my show notes pages that have uh, all kinds of uh, extra links and articles and documents and stuff relating to the latest episode. And over on Substack, you can also find uh, a bunch of articles and essays that I write from time to time, mostly dealing with issues of constitutional law. Uh, And if you are interested in constitutional law or if you just want a good way to support the show, uh, might I recommend you check out my new book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand. Now, this is a book about the implied powers doctrine of the Constitution, and we talk about what this doctrine is, what it means, uh, how it has evolved over time, why it is so important that people should really understand uh, this seemingly abstract area of constitutional law, and how we can begin to roll back the implied powers doctrine more towards uh, something like the meaning and scope that it had Uh, according to those who gave the document legal force. You can find links to all of those things down in this video's description. So, some of you might be expecting my second video on the trial of Muhammad Ali, uh, and that is done and ready to go, and that'll be up in a day or two. But this is one of those times where I just... uh, I watched a video and it really got to me and I just really had to kind of get this out of the way and make this video talking about it or I would have gone crazy. So this all started uh, recently when I was watching one of the latest videos from uh, one of my favorite YouTubers, a guy named Sean Fitzgerald, who is much better known by his screen name, The Actual Justice Warrior. Now. I really like Sean's videos. I found his channel back around like 2015 or 2016, and I've been a regular viewer ever since. He really does great work discussing issues of criminal justice. Uh, really, it's hard to think of anyone who isn't me who is better at completely dismantling criminal justice and social justice nonsense uh, from, like, lefters or bread tubers. But... Not so much this time because his recent video went after a topic that I have discussed here on the show myself a number of times, and this is the idea that the police have no duty to protect you. Now, Sean argues that this is a myth that is so stupid that he can hardly believe any person would be stupid enough to even make this argument that is a complete fabrication based on nothing. But the thing is, Sean gets so much disastrously wrong and so completely misunderstands seemingly every single facet of this argument. Uh, And especially because he is so uh, condescendingly dismissive of anyone who would dare argue the point that I will be proving today in this video, I just had to put this together and speak out and uh, maybe she will see it or maybe someone else will get something from it. I don't know. But the thing is, despite what he says, the fact is the police have no duty to protect you. And I will be irrefutably demonstrating that by the end of this video. Now, in Sean's video, he talks about two cases that don't even make the claim that the police have no duty to protect you. And he insists that this is the entirety of the body of evidence that looks, uh, that will back up this claim. Uh, And the thing is, he did say, well, if there are any more cases that prove this wrong, uh, you know, point them out and I'll take a look at them. Now, the issue is I can't simply just do that because it's not just that he got the relevant cases wrong. He demonstrated that he doesn't understand either the meaning of the term police powers, nor does he understand the meaning of the public duty doctrine. So I need to explain what these things even are before we can talk about what cases are relevant to this topic. Now, I have linked to his video, which is called Do the Police Have to Protect You?, You can find that link down in my video's description. Uh, And as always, while I will be showing you guys the relevant clips, I do encourage everyone uh, to go watch his video first in its entirety so you fully understand what he is saying and the context under which he is saying it. Also, there's one more thing I do uh, want to be clear about here uh, is that... uh, I'm not making this response to criticize Sean in general because, again, I really do like his videos. Uh, They tend to be usually some of the most well-researched videos that you will find as far as uh, political commentators on YouTube go. So after you watch uh, his particular video in question and this video of me responding to him, I'd encourage you to go check out his other videos too because he really does actually do good work, and frankly, I struggle to understand how he could have been so wrong in this instance, but he is. So there are two brief caveats I wish to offer real quick here, because uh, for one, he makes it very clear in his video that he believes the people who are making the point that he claims to be
1: refuting are all leftists. But the thing is, like those other myths that I've debunked from time to time, this one is also completely untrue, and the conclusions that the left draws from this untrue myth, that we need to get into the social workers more, and really get those social workers into the community because the police don't have to protect you, are also completely asinine, and when you find out what was actually in this case, patently absurd, and of course, the opposite is true.
0: And while Sean doesn't explicitly say this, I do think it is fair to extrapolate that what he is saying here is that he believes the people who make this point are wrong because they are looking at this issue with a leftist bias. However, the thing is, Sean is a libertarian. I am a libertarian. He and I are not two people with very different political philosophies arguing over fundamental disagreements. Really, the places where his politics and mine differ, differ. I mean, it's largely a matter of degree. And my second point is that, uh, for the purposes of this video, my first caveat is entirely superfluous and irrelevant. What I mean is that there are a couple things that I do really sort of pride myself on here as far as the content uh, I create One of them is that I am always willing to uh, admit my own political bias when the discussion we are having is a political one. The other one is that I keep my law and my politics separate. Now, in videos discussing law, and especially uh, my bread and butter, which is constitutional law, which is precisely what we will be discussing here today, uh, I am speaking as a constitutional law scholar and a legal analyst, I'm not interested in shoving my own libertarian values into the law, and that is doubly true when it comes to the Constitution. I'm a constitutional originalist, I'm a statutory textualist, and it is from that perspective alone that I will be discussing the content of Sean's videos. And of course, as always, citations and references to everything I discuss in this video are linked down in my video's description or they can be found over on the show notes page on Substack. So, in this video, Sean is taking on what he says is the complete myth that the police have no duty to
1: protect you. Videos? And that is this idea that the police have no obligation at all whatsoever to protect you in any way, shape, or form. I get this comment.
0: He then makes an incredibly disingenuous argument that in his last video, which was about prisoners in El Salvador, he claims that people who say police have no duty to protect you even said that in response to his video about El Salvador, even though it's totally unrelated.
1: Even my last one on El Salvador, which, of course, that would have no bearing on that topic at all whatsoever because a Supreme Court ruling that supposedly says the police don't have to protect you has nothing to do with the nation of El Salvador. But the thing is, like
0: now, I don't know if anyone is actually dumb enough to claim that. It's certainly possible, but it really seems like a disingenuous straw man on his part kind of meant to poison the well by implying that no one who makes a general claim that the police have no duty to protect you should be taken seriously because somebody was dumb enough to apply American laws and the United States Supreme Court cases to El Salvador. Now, look, if someone actually did leave such a comment, that makes that person an idiot, uh, not the point, the, not the broader point that the idiot might have also been making. Now, the next issue is that he then misidentifies the meaning of the term police power and misinterprets the relevant legal doctrine, which is namely the public duty doctrine, uh, to prove he is right. And he brings up two separate cases that are relevant to substantive due process under the 14th Amendment, whereas the police powers is a concept derived from the 10th Amendment and from state constitutions and the public duty doctrine comes from the common law of torts. So, while the 14th Amendment and substantive due process aren't entirely irrelevant to police powers and the public duty doctrine, they are irrelevant to the fundamental meaning and scope of this issue. Uh, He then goes on to conflate police misconduct, and civil rights violations with police powers and the public duty doctrine. And he uses the charges brought against one of the officers on the scene when George Floyd died as his evidence that the police do, in fact, have a duty to protect you because one cop on the scene who never actually restrained George Floyd uh, personally has been hit with criminal and civil charges. Now, what's interesting is this is actually... Uh, a great example of why Sean is entirely wrong, but we need to understand the basic meaning and scope of the central issues of police powers and the public duty doctrine before the reason he is wrong can make sense, so we will return to that point a little later. Now, it is at this point that Sean gives his very incorrect interpretation of the
1: meaning and scope of police powers intervene but what you need to understand is that police in terms of federal law in terms of what the supreme court is referring to is actually just a word for executive offices executive actions or similar so it could cover the police department because that is under the purview of the executive branch but it also could cover the EPA it also could cover the Department of Energy or any department that is under the executive branch because the executive branch typically has the police power because their job is to execute the laws aka enforce that's where executive gets their name so these cases what you actually find out when you look into them actually don't have anything to do with police departments at all in fact the key case where this so-called no duty to intervene actually comes from involves social workers so the case is the v winnebago county department of social services from 1989. And the holding was as follows. The 14th Amendment does not require the state to intervene in protecting residents from actions of private parties that may infringe on their life, liberty, and
0: Now, the thing is that that is just plain wrong. So, in United States constitutional law, the police power is the capacity of the state's to regulate behavior and enforce order within their territory for the betterment of the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of their inhabitants. Now, police power is defined in each jurisdiction by the legislative body, which determines the public purpose uh, that needs to be served by legislation, and under the Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which says that the power is not delegated to the federal government, are reserved to the states or to the people. So this means that the federal government does not possess all possible powers because most of these are referred to the governments of the several states, the rest reserved to the people. And this is why all his references to federal law and federal government executive branch and the Supreme Court demonstrate his misunderstanding and misinterpretation of this entire issue because the places where they actually apply to the federal government are really more a small number of exceptions to the general rule that the Tenth Amendment puts the police powers squarely in the hands of state governments. The very nature of police powers are those powers of coercion granted to the general governments of the several states. So while it's not impossible that the Supreme Court may hear a case dealing with police powers since they do have appellate jurisdiction over all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution. Uh, For example, uh, we do find in uh, cases such as the landmark slaughterhouse case in 1872, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a New Orleans law which requires slaughterhouses to move to the outer skirts of the city to maintain the cleanliness and health of the city as a valid exercise of police power. But the Supreme Court should not be the first place you look for relevant precedent, and it absolutely should not be the only place you look for relevant precedent, which seems to be what Sean does. Now, the public duty doctrine is a principle of tort law that governments owe duties to the public at large rather than to individuals. In general, this doctrine provides that a governmental entity can be held liable only when the duty breached was owed to the injured person as an individual and was not merely the breach of an obligation owed to the public at large. The governmental duty to protect its citizens is a general duty to the public as a whole. When there is only a general duty to protect the public, there is no duty of care to the individual citizen, which may result in liability. In in short, a duty to all is a duty to no one. Now, we find this uh, fleshed out a little bit in the case of uh, O'Brien Versus City of Tacoma out of the Ninth Circuit, in which the court found that in the context of the public duty doctrine to establish a special relationship, the plaintiff must show one, some form of privity or direct contact between the government agency and the plaintiff that sets the plaintiff apart from the general public. Two, the agency gave the plaintiff specific assurances that resulted in the agency undertaking a duty. And third, the plaintiff justifiably relied upon those insurances. And this is the reason that his claim about the uh, George Floyd case is so wrong, because he is referring to one of the exceptions, which is a special
1: duty of care owed to An individual citizen. There are many circumstances where an officer can not only be sued, found civilly liable fired, suspended, or otherwise disciplined by law enforcement, but criminally charged due to their failure to act, their failure to intervene in very specific situations, like, for example, the Asian cop Tao in the Officer Derek Chauvin case. Remember the Asian cop Tao in the Derek Chauvin-George Floyd case? Remember how he was not one of the officers that were pinning George Floyd to the ground, and yet he not only faced criminal charges on the local level, but civil rights charges on the national level on the federal level along with Derek Chauvin and those other officers that were trying to make the arrest of the resisting george floyd well one of the reasons and one of the principles behind his charging was that the prosecutors decided that he violated george floyd's civil rights by not interfering when he saw another officer violating those civil rights if police officers have no duty at all whatsoever to protect you then Tao should not have been held criminally liable However, he was held criminally liable in this situation, because again, there are many situations where police officers' failure to act can result in discipline and/or criminal charges. So this is: So
0: his evidence is that Officer Tao, uh, an officer who was on the scene when George Floyd died, but who was not one of the officers who were pinning Floyd to the ground. Yet this officer faced criminal charges and a civil action for a violation of Floyd's rights by non-intervening. And the problem is that, as I said earlier, he is mistaking police misconduct with the public duty doctrine. These are not at all the same thing, because the way the public duty doctrine works is that there is no general duty owed by right to any particular citizen. You need to establish what is known as a special duty of care because the officer and the individual in question, between the officer and the individual in question, I mean. Now, this is the kind of claim that is primarily made against corrections officers, but it may also be made against local police in their operation of a jail, or even while a person is under arrest and in the custody of an officer. For example... If you arrest and handcuff a person and place him in the back seat of a police car for transportation to the station, but you fail to secure him with a seatbelt, any injuries he sustains if someone rear ends the police car could make them and the employing agency liable for a due process violation. Since your prisoner was unable to put on his own seatbelt, then the police had an affirmative duty to belt him before driving away. So, Officer Tao did have a special duty of care for George Floyd, as George Floyd was both literally and figuratively completely under police control uh, on the scene and had been placed under arrest. And we find this sort of fleshed out in De Palma versus Metro Government of Nashville. This is a case out of the Sixth Circuit where they found regarding the special duty exception to the public duty doctrine, a special duty of care exists when one, officials by their actions affirmatively undertake to protect the plaintiff and the plaintiff relies upon that undertaking. Second, a statute specifically provides for a cause of action against an official or municipality for injuries resulting to a particular class of individuals, of which the plaintiff is a member, from failure to enforce certain laws, or third, the plaintiff alleges a cause of action involving intent, malice, or reckless misconduct. So that is what I mean when I say that he is conflating police misconduct and civil rights violations with the public duty doctrine because these particular incidents where an officer is able to be held liable are quite literally the exceptions to the rule. Because George Floyd was under arrest and being pinned to the ground meant that he was in police custody under police control. That is why a cop who wasn't actually pinning him to the ground but watched him die and did nothing, is culpable. And this is uh, in accordance with 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, which created the kind of cause of action we are talking about here for deprivation of rights. So this was further affirmed in the Tenth Circuit in the case of Ulrich v. Harder, where the court found that A special relationship exists when the state assumes control over an individual sufficient to trigger an affirmative duty to provide protection to that individual, and the court says such as when the individual is a prisoner or involuntarily committed mental patient. So I want to discuss two cases that I think will really uh, demonstrate how wrong Sean is here because, look, I have no idea where he got the, uh, the Winnebago case and the Gonzalez case that he quotes as being the two default examples of what is meant by the public duty doctrine in regard to police specifically. Now, there are uh, two cases that come to my mind that I want to discuss, uh, one of them is Warren versus D.C., which is probably the most well-known case where the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in an en banc session held that the police do not owe a specific duty to provide police services to specific citizens based on the public duty doctrine. And the other case demonstrates that Sean's claim that it is ridiculous to believe a person could be the victim of a crime That the police could sit and watch happen and not be held liable for failing to intervene.
1: Let's get into the facts of the case. And maybe this says that the police can just allow you to be victimized by a crime, watch it happen, and not be held liable for not intervening. So, this involves a divorce. When the Dasanis divorced, their son Joshua was placed in the custody of their father.
0: That is why... I want to talk about the 2012 case of Lozito v. New York because in this case, the New York Supreme Court dismissed a case in which a person was being attacked by a guy with a knife and the police sat there and watched it happen and did nothing and were not held liable for their failure to intervene. So this case uh, has to do actually with a spree killer in New York uh, and specifically, his final victim before he was apprehended. So, according to official reports, Gelman, uh, the killer, started banging on the door of a motorman's cab in a subway, demanding to be let in and claiming that he was the police. At which point, two police officers assigned to the manhunt did not let him in the cab. Gelman then knocked on the train conductor's booth and identified himself as a police officer. When the door failed to open, he lunged at Lozito, who was the conductor, and Gelman stabbed him in the head and face. Lozito fought back and eventually took Gelman down to the ground. Only after Lozito had disarmed and restrained Gelman did the police officers who were standing just several feet away from Gelman and Lozito during the entire attack, who witnessed the whole thing happen, only then did those two police officers leap in to the conductor's booth and arrest Gelman. So Lozito later found out that the police knew who Gelman was and that he was dangerous, but they did nothing to help him when he was being stabbed because they said they thought Gelman had a gun. They only acted to help once Gelman was already disarmed and restrained. And it was because of that that Lozito would go on to file charges against the two officers in question, an officer, Terrence Howell, and an officer, Tamara Taylor, who hid in the motorman's cab while Lozito was engaging in a physical confrontation with Gelman, and they did not come out until he had been disarmed and he was pinned to the ground. Now, when Lozito uh, tried to uh, sue the police, For failing to intervene, in response to the suit, attorneys for the city of New York argued that the police had no duty to protect Lozito or any other person from Gelman. And so, on July twenty-fifth of twenty thirteen, Judge Margaret Chan dismissed Lozito's suit, stating that while Lozito's account of the attack rang true and appeared credible. Uh, Chan agreed that the police had no duty to protect Lozito. Now go into the decision itself. Mr. Lozito described in dramatic detail the blows and defensive maneuvers he used to disarm and take down Gelman. His statements ring true and appear highly credible. However, It is well settled that absent a special relationship, discretionary government functions such as the provision of police protection are immune from tort liability. Despite even very sympathetic facts, public policy demands that a damaged plaintiff be able to identify the duty owed specifically to him or her, not a general duty to society at large. This is especially so when an individual seeks recovery out of the public purse. The law is abundantly clear that no liability flows from negligence in the performance of a police function unless there is a special relationship. Even giving Mr. Lozito every favorable inference, the court nonetheless is bound to grant the defendant's motion to dismiss. Plaintiffs have failed to allege a prima facie case of negligence as a facts do not establish a
2: special relationship.
0: The criteria for establishing a special relationship were set forth by the Court of Appeals in Cuffy v. New York. The elements of this special relationship are, 1. An assumption by the municipality through promises or actions of an affirmative duty to act on behalf of a party who was injured. Two, knowledge on the part of the municipality's agents that inaction could lead to harm. Third, some form of direct contact between the municipality's agents and the injured party. And fourth, the party's justifiable reliance on the municipality's affirmative undertaking. While plaintiffs pointed to the officer's close proximity to the attack and their perceived ability to prevent it, proximity does not constitute a special relationship. Mr. Lozito conceded that he had no communication or contact with the police officers before the attack took place. The first prong of the cuffy elements were not met here. No direct promise or protection was made to Mr. Lozito, nor were there direct actions taken to protect Mr. Lozito prior to the attack. Therefore, a special duty does not exist. Ultimately, this case must be dismissed as a matter of law. Why? Well, because the police have no duty to protect you. So the next case I want to talk about is Warren versus District of Columbia. So Warren v. District of Columbia is a District of Columbia Court of Appeals case that held that police do not owe a specific duty to provide services to specific citizens based on the public duty doctrine. Now, the facts of this case are not easy to listen to, but I think it's best to clearly state the plain facts, even if they make people uncomfortable, Uh, so fair warning. So, in the early morning hours, in March 16th of 1975, appellants Carolyn Warren, Joan uh, Faro, and Miriam Douglas were asleep in their rooming house. Warren and Faro shared a room on the third floor of the house. Douglas shared a room on the second floor with her four-year-old daughter. The women were awakened by the sound of the back door being broken down by two men, later identified as Marvin Kent and James Morse. The men entered Douglas' second-floor room, where Kent forced Douglas to sodomize him and Morse raped her. Warren and the affair, heard Douglas's screams from the floor below. Warren telephoned the police and told officers on duty that the house was being burglarized and requested immediate
2: assistance.
0: The department's employees told her to remain quiet and assured her that police assistance would be dispatched promptly. Warren's call was received at the Metropolitan Police Headquarters at 6.23 a.m. and it was recorded as a burglary in progress. At 6.26 a.m., a call was dispatched to officers on the street as a code to assignment, although calls of a crime in progress should always be given priority and designation as code one meanwhile warren and talia farrow crawled from their window onto the adjoining roof and waited for the police to arrive while there they saw one policeman drive through the alley behind the house and proceed to the front of their residence without stopping leaning out of the window or getting out of the car to check the back entrance of the house A second officer apparently knocked on the front door of the residence but left when he received no answer. And the total of three officers at the scene departed at 6.33 a.m. At this, Warren and Talia Farrow crawled back inside their room. They again heard Douglas's continuing screams they again called the police. They told the police that the intruders had entered the home and requested immediate assistance. Once again, a police officer assured them that help was on the way. The second call was received at 6.42 a.m., but it was only recorded merely as, quote, investigate the trouble, end quote and it was never dispatched to any police officer. Now, shortly after that, believing the police might be in the house, Warren and Talia Farrow called down to Douglas, thereby alerting Kent to their presence. With this, Kent and Morse then forced all three women at knife point to accompany them to Kent's apartment, where, for the next 14 hours... The women were held captive, raped, robbed, beaten, forced to commit sexual acts upon each other, and made to submit to the sexual demands of both Kent and Morse. Appellants Carolyn Warren, Miriam Douglas, and Joan Taliaferro sued the District of Columbia and individual members of the Metropolitan Police Department for a negligent failure to provide adequate police services. Now, going to the actual case brief, Warren to Farrow, and Douglas brought the following claims of negligence against the District of Columbia and the Metropolitan Police Department. First, the dispatcher's failure to forward the call at six twenty three a m with the de- with the proper degree of urgency Second the responding officer's failure to follow standard police investigative procedures, specifically their failure to check the rear entrance and position themselves properly near the doors and windows to ascertain whether there was activity inside. And third, the dispatcher's failure to dispatch the 642 AM call. Now, the Respective trial judges held that the police were under no specific legal duty to provide protection to the individual appellants and dismissed the complaint for failure to state a claim upon which relief could be granted according to the Superior Court Rules of Civil Procedure 12b-6. However, on appeal, in a split decision, a three-judge division of the D.C. Circuit Court determined that appellants Warren Leah Farrow were owed a special duty of care by the police department and reversed the trial court's ruling. However, the division unanimously concluded that the appellant Douglas failed to fit within the class of persons to whom a special duty was owed and affirmed the lower court's dismissal of her complaint. On petition for rehearing, an on banc D.C. Circuit Court panel vacated the panel's decision. Now, as I've discussed here in past videos, an en banc session is when a case is heard before a panel of all judges for that court rather than a single judge or smaller panel of judges. Uh, En banc is essentially a discretionary review that is used for unusually complex or important cases when the court feels there is a particularly significant issue at stake. Now, the court held... The duty to provide public services is owed to the public at large and absent a special relationship between the police and an individual, no specific legal duty exists. In other words, the police have no duty to protect you. All right, well, that is... All I've got for you guys today. Uh, I certainly hope you uh, enjoyed the show, found it interesting. Uh, If you like this video, go ahead and hit that like button. If you disliked it, go ahead and hit the dislike button. Uh, If you would do all those things that help uh, trigger Al Gore's rhythm, uh, you know, leave a comment, let me know what you thought, subscribe to the channel so you always get my new videos, all of that stuff. I would be uh, very grateful to you for all of that. And so until next time, this is Bob for Legalese signing off. And of course, as always, Cartago Delenda
2: Est.